Blink today. <laughs> Love Talk Radio. <laughs> Let's get love in a better place Pick up a bird, travel through time and space So much to learn, so much to see A chance to escape reality Open your mind and your heart Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is so exciting. We're going to talk about different thing, components of reading and the reading process according to the National Reading Panel, but we're going to talk about a whole lot more. Theoretical construct of memory, metacognition, and lots more. And for those of you that are listening, especially with children that are in lower grades that are starting to read, you don't want to miss that. And we have Dr. Cavuto here. And good morning, and I'm so excited. Good morning, Fran. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I, I'm excited. Now, I have the list of things, and I looked this up. I'm very proud of myself. I looked up everything. And uh-huh. it says that we talked about, this is what bothers me, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. All the com- uh-huh. components, right. Now, I, I wonder sometimes if, they, if, an ed- if a reading lesson or a teacher actually does all of that when they're supposed to do a reading lesson. So in your opinion, of these components, what should be, what should be taught? All of them, some of them, during a reading lesson? How do we start? Yep, good question. Um, quite honestly, I think that there aren't too many reading specialists, if any, yourself included, who would uh, say that there's a problem with the uh, the five um, uh, pillars of reading instruction, according to the National Reading Panel. Funny, McCarty, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. But uh, in terms of your question, since that's not even debatable, they're all important. In terms of your question. In my view, phonemic awareness, phonemic awareness should should actually happen from the from the womb to the room. In other words, when children, mm-hmm. uh, firstborn parents should be reading to them, and they even as as infants they should be reading to them, and the children are hearing those sounds of language. But phonemic awareness is one's knowledge and awareness of the sounds of language, which are called phonemes, as you know. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's an important differentiation. Phonemic awareness is not phonics. Phonics is one's knowledge of the relationship between the graphemes, the letters, and the sounds of the phonemes. So phonemic awareness, uh, phonics is typically a school kind of uh, activity, kind of, mm-hmm. but it's basically uh, taught in school when children begin schooling. Whereas phonemic awareness should begin as soon as possible. Every time the parent is reading to the child, especially, of course, rhyming books, the children are developing an ear for the sounds of language. They don't, the, the parents, the parents are reading, even the old, uh, the parents are reading nursery rhymes to children, the parents are reading Dr. Zeus to children, the parents are reading any kind of uh, age-appropriate poetry to, to their child. They don't realize that they're doing phonemic awareness training. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
so um, I'm going to try to not be as verbose as I am. Sometimes I apologize. Uh, but I, 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 I'm trying to be uh, uh, complete in my response. So, fundamental awareness, should it be taught? Of course. Should it be taught in school? Well, my answer to that is if it need be. If, if, if the teacher sees that the youngster lacks phonemic awareness, well, then it should be done. If the youngster mm-hmm. is in first grade, let's say, and he just so happens to be a, a natural reader, so in first grade is already decoding, figuring out words on a second grade level or something like that, uh, to do phonemic awareness is patently absurd. He doesn't need it. Simply does not need it, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, could that youngster benefit? Let's jump to the next. So, so phonemic awareness could and should be part of reading instruction if, in fact, children need it. This this, this, this whole, uh, well, just to, to, to simplify, all, all, the answer to your question is predicated upon the teacher being cognizant of what each of these areas are and not just cognizant that they could recite them at a conference or something, but they should be able to (laughs) sit down with children and be aware of, well, I can see already a jelly needs some work in phonemic awareness. I can tell. I'm doing some cat. You can't even put that together to make cat. Uh, that's is a problem. That's when you make integration, okay? So I'm going to work with her a little bit on that. Joe, I, I could say uh, K, R, N, R, and Joey says carpenter right away. Well, here's me for phonemic awareness training. So the, the answer to your, the partial answer to your question is phonemic awareness should be taught when needed, and it should be taught, incidentally, starting from birth as parents are reading to children, care, parents, caregivers, uh, uh, babysitters, et cetera, et cetera, um, every time poetry is being read to children, they're getting a, a, their, their head is developing a knowledge of the sounds of spoken language. Okay, uh, phonics, now that's a big key. We're way back to when, why Johnny can't read. Remember Rudolph Flesh wrote that book in whatever, 1958, 1960? And his thesis is this world-famous linguist, Rudolph Flesh, why Johnny can't read in his uh, a 200-page book to make a ridiculous point. Johnny can't read because we don't teach phonics in our schools. Well, it was, I'm sorry, Rudolph Flesh, he flung the uh, past, but uh, I'm sure he was a brilliant linguist, but he didn't know how reading works. In, in, in English, we have 26 letters, 26 graphemes. Unfortunately, we have 44 phonemes. We don't have one-to-one correspondences between the graphemes and the phonemes. What does mm-hmm. that mean? That means in English, only, only 60% of the words sound out reasonably well. Ah. of the words. What does that mean? That means that 40% are not standoutable. Does that mean we have to give the children 200 sight word cards on index cards to study at home and put them up on a wall and make a word word wall or any of that nonsense? Absolutely not. Okay? But it does mean that teachers should teach youngsters sound similar relationships. Uh, Important. It's one of the three language queuing systems. But the more important question, in my view, is how should it be taught? And there's three ways to teach phonics. You could teach phonics, uh, rule-based phonics, where you have a consonant, a vowel, and a consonant, which and that mm-hmm. means and it's 
CBC word, which they teach that rule in first grade, that if a consonant and a vowel and a consonant, the vowel will be short, which means it does not say its name. After saying that rule to the children, you've already lost 80% of your children. Mm-hmm. There's no clue. The degree of, of abstraction of phonic rules is incredible, okay? If the youngster happens to say cat, bat, bit, mid, oh, look at that, he learned a rule. No, he didn't. He learned, he, he's reading the words in spite of the rule. Okay, so the second way to teach phonics is um, uh, uh, by uh, uh, letter clusters. And letter clusters is where you put um, two letters together or three letters together. A-C is at, I-P is in, A-N is an, I-C-K is it, ick, okay? And letter clusters is, in my view, a, a very, very effective way to teach mm-hmm. uh, phonics because it doesn't involve as much integration. If you're, if you're reading the word, um, uh, let me see, batting, uh, with clusters, it's but, at, ing, only three clusters. That's not too much of a load on short-term memory. You could put that together. But if, you, if you're using the third method to teach phonics, which is, Letter by letter, sequential phonics, systematic letter by letter phonics. Batting is the but, French, right? It, absurd. And, but you know what? That's going on in so many schools and in so many of our intervention programs. They're teaching letter by letter incidental, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, systematic phonics. So uh, I'm sorry you spent so much time, but I. I can't give some of these a quickie. Uh, phonics should be taught. Our language is not purely phonetics. By the way, Italian and, and uh, uh, Spanish are much more phonetic than English. That's because they have about the same number of uh, letters as sounds. That's why most of the words in Spanish and most of the words in English, I'm sorry, most words in Spanish, most of the words in Italian sound that reasonably well. Not in English. Only 60%. Okay, by the way, so how do you get the other 40%? Ah, you don't need as Rudolph, um, I don't know if I should, uh, oh, Dolch. As Dolch said, well, there are 220 sight words. And when kids learn those, uh, they're going to be in good shape in first and second grade. Well, he got that by evaluating basal readers and saw that there are about 220 words that repeat themselves, but they don't sound out. So kids must memorize them. That's nonsense. Kids don't have to memorize them. Those words are usually contextually bound. So if the kid is reading and uses a sentence to figure it out, as we know, context clues, semantic cues, that's a Mm -hmm. wonderful way. In fact, I was reading a little bit about one of the, it's fairly new, it's called the science of reading. The last two, three years has become a a real hot intervention program. And and they kind of, if I may, uh, they they, kind of poo-poo. Uh, guessing. In fact, most of the articles I'm talking about reading, uh, oh, no, they don't teach kids to guess. Friends, guessing, guessing gets us through life. Guessing gets us through life. Now, let's let's change that sentence. Guessing, let's not call it guessing because that has that kind of, oh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, but let's call it hypothesis, hypothesis testing. Okay? If we call it mm-hmm. hypothesis testing, ah, now it's much more scientific. Well, if the mm-hmm. kid reads, Daddy came home from work and put the car in the and put the car in the and the teacher takes their finger, puts it over that word and says, look at me. Where did Daddy come home from? Work. 
Where do you think he put the car? Kids would say, in the garage. And then the teacher lifts up her hand and the, and the kid, and he looks at the word. You, you just taught him that you can figure out, by the way, can you, can you ask him? All right, I sound it, honey. I said, sound it. Sure you can. I did a doctoral dissertation of listening to what teachers did when kids can't get words. Feedback to miss you. The teacher who asked the kids to sound that garage, I'm sorry, shame on you, shame on you. Garage does not sound that at all. Totally phonetically inconsistent, okay? Mm. So, but, if we, but, it, but in that sentence, it's contextually bound. So you can, you can ask the kid to sound it out. If the, if the sentence said, uh, he went in the garage, he saw his friend in the garage, they had a good time. Geez, what do you do then? You can't sound it out. You can't use the semantics to get it. There's only one thing to do, friends. You tell them the word. Yeah, tell them the word. And some teachers think that telling the word is a, uh, I, I don't know, the mortal mortal sin. Is that the bad one? <laughs> it's not. It's not. In fact, I had a principal once who was watching me, and after watching me, she said, Dr. Blue, I, I heard you tell the youngster quite a few words. I said, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, did you notice uh, which which words I told them? No, not really. I told what I did was I told them the words that were phonetically inconsistent, which means I couldn't give them a phonetic, uh, a phonic cue, and they were not contextually bound, so I couldn't give them a semantic cue, and so the only thing I could do was tell them. And, oh, oh. now, friends, I, I'm not at all uh, uh, poking fun at teachers or denigrating at principals or denigrating them, but this, this is the science of reading. Giving appropriate feedback to children as they read involves mm-hmm. the teacher knowing the process inside out. Okay, so there's phonics. Should phonics be taught? The answer to your question is absolutely when and if needed. If the youngster is a natural reader, he probably needs phonics like, I, I don't know, like I need a third ship. He doesn't. But, if, but most youngsters need phonics in K1 and 2, and they should get it. By the way, the, if I may uh, qualify, but if they're getting phonics, do plus the phonics, plus the phonics, so much easier to integrate and so much easier than the rules. Uh, this kid, 200, we have 200 and, uh, 158 phonic rules, and most of them do not work 50% of the time. They don't teach the rules. They're too, too, they're too complex. And most certainly don't teach letter-by-letter letter phonics. Now, I'm saying these things as if this is dogma. It actually is dogma if you read the research. But unfortunately, teachers aren't made privy to the research. Okay, so then we have fluent reading, which is another uh, pillar of the uh, National Reading mm-hmm. And fluent, re- fluent reading, I, I find this interesting because a lot of times teachers, teachers, and, and teachers gratefully have that as a goal. I want my youngsters to be fluent readers. Fluent mm. meaning that they can kind of move through the sentence <laughs> fluently without getting hung up on a word. And um, uh, uh, if I may, I'm going to call it automatic, where they could read the words automatically. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Edmund Burke Huey, the person we talked about a couple, couple of sessions ago, uh, who wrote the 1898 book, The Psychology and Pedagogy of Reading, he, mm-hmm. he, he actually had in that book something called the non-oral hypothesis, where he talked about not having kids read orally for the first two, three years of school. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I'm going to go that far. However, he had a point. Reading orally is a procedural display. It's nothing more that the, 
then the young for kids who can already decode well, they don't have to read all. Like why? Unless it's a poem or a play and it's meant to be all. But kids who can't decode well, all that happens to them when they read orally as we both know. What happens to them? They get incredibly embarrassed. And then mm-hmm. there's there's Priscilla or Paul. Those are the two youngsters in the class who have taken it upon themselves to always give the word when when the kid can't get it. They'll just yell it out, all right? Uh, Daddy put the car in the garage. And, the, and sometimes the teacher is complicit. Thank you for your help. Well, I'm sorry, but they, they're not helping. In fact, I, I, I used to say for years and years when I, uh, when I was in the classroom teaching graduate students um, uh, the, the uh, uh, theoretical aspects and pragmatic aspects of reading, is that you have to gag them. You have to gag them. And my students would get a little bit concerned that this professor was crazy. And I was talking not not literally, of course, but I was I was saying you have to make a rule that when someone comes across a word they can't get, no one is allowed to tell them. No one. The only one that's, that's allowed right. to say English is me. And I'm, you're going to notice that sometimes I sometimes I'll tell, but sometimes I won't. Sometimes I might say, "What do you think that word means?" Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might. You might hear me say, sounds it out. What you're doing, actually, with, with what I'm talking about here, Fred, is you're making children, and this is a phrase I've written about several times, you're making the kids privy to process. The, what That what you're doing is not just, uh, 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 it, it, it's not just, oh, let me try this. this time. No, it's a, there, there's a message to your madness, and it's not madness. Okay, so, uh, by the way, fluency, fluency comes, it develops in reading by children becoming automatic decoders. By the way, whatever you have a youngster who's a fluent, he's in third grade, every time you want something read out loud, you call on, on him. Okay? Why? Because he's incredibly fluent. Uh, I have I, I have a little bit of a problem on that and, uh, with that and that is in third grade, why are they reading orally? Uh, there's really no reason to, uh, uh, to do that much oral reading. But secondly, if the youngster is fluent, and he finishes reading something fluently, and the teacher says, beautiful reading, Salvatore, beautiful reading, Sally. Um, I have a problem with that. I would much rather the teacher said, thank you, Salvatore, thank you, Sally. Tell me what, what you just read. Tell me about what you just read. Ah, by doing the second thing, the teacher is convincing the student, is, is basically letting all her students know that reading is all about getting meaning. It's not all about word That's right. So fluency without comprehension is nothing more than, as a term that you used uh, a couple of times during our talk, is nothing more than word calling. Okay? In fact, when parents, when parents say, well, my uncle is a great reader. He's a great reader. He just understand, he doesn't understand anything. That's an oxymoron. We both know that. Okay? If the youngster can read anything and sounds good when he reads fluently and he reads fluently and he doesn't understand it, he's not a good reader. Reading is all about getting meaning. And why did the parent think the youngster is a good reader? Because the teachers have told the parent, he reads beautifully. He reads fluently. That's usually when it's by May. That's usually when the, uh, uh, it's exposed in third grade. Because by third grade, that's when they're reading content area text, which puts a heavy load on comprehension, background knowledge, and all of a sudden this word caller 
and answer those questions at the end of the chapter. Okay, so we we have uh, fluency. Uh, fluency is fine. Fluency is definitely important because the more attention you have to give to figuring out the words, the less attention you can give to meaning. So we do want fluent readers. We most certainly don't want that to be the end all, and we don't want that to be uh, uh, all that as important as the next the next one, next two, vocabulary development and comprehension. Vocabulary development, two ways to do it. Uh, contextual analysis, figuring out the meaning of the word from the context. Mm-hmm. I used to put on the board all the time. Smoking is deleterious. I put the word deleterious on the board. Most of my graduate students, many of them, didn't know what it meant. Then I was surrounded by smoking is deleterious to your health, and everybody know what, knew what it meant. Yeah, that's, that's using contextual analysis. Contextual analysis is a great way to develop vocabulary, and, uh, but the teacher has to know how to do it. It's not terribly hard. And the second way is morphological analysis, and that's the way you can bring in the classics. Teach children Greek and Latin, prefixes, suffixes, and roots. Huh? And this went away a long time ago, and I still see, I know some tutors that uh, do SAT uh, uh, prep in Manhattan where they charge, oh, my God, $500 an hour uh, to these uh, the, uh, very rich people are trying to get their youngsters into very fancy uh, private schools, and they give them lists of words to study at home, 20, 30, 50 words to mm. study the meetings of. Give them prefixes, suffixes, and roots. They'll unlock thousands of words for them. Okay, so vocabulary, I think, should in fact be part of every reading lesson, and it should be in fact every day. You can start out in the classroom by doing a, a Latin, a Greek, Latin or Greek prefixes of a root. Okay, if they learn what free means, free, huh? and they say, oh, he's in preschool. That means before school. Ah, ah. He's, he's preparing. That means he's getting ready. Before he does it, he's preparing. Wonderful way to unlock words. Okay, and then, so now that brings me to the last pillar, which is comprehension. And if that friend we, we both know, and I think the majority of our teachers, teacher listeners know, and probably parent listeners as well, that's what reading is all about. Reading is all about getting meaning. And what, what I find fascinating is that a, a, a person who has a really good background of reading will say that meaning, I'm sorry, that comprehension is an active, constructive process, which mm-hmm. means that the reader doesn't, like, suck the meaning off the page. Huh? He, he actually is taking part in constructing it. And that's kind of an or make. That's kind of an interesting concept. What that means mm-hmm. is the reader, as he or she is reading, is one step ahead of the author, whereas where, whereby he or she is actually anticipating the next word, phrase, even paragraph. Sometimes he or she is right, sometimes he or she is wrong, but it says, oh, no, that's not what I thought it was going to happen at all. That's a good thing. That, that's self-monitoring. So, so reading comprehension is critically important, and of all the reading intervention programs, they can be divided into two two broad uh, areas, uh, friends. You have uh, uh, phonics-based programs, and you have meaning-based programs. And uh, without saying it, I'm sure you're 
you're, because you, you were a student of my class a few years ago, and uh, uh, I, I, you're a very good student, and you, you're still ringing in your ear. It's all about getting meaning. It's all the guy makes that get meaning. Mm-hmm. Now, based programs, they don't disregard meaning, but they put such an enormous emphasis on the decoding aspect, almost as if that will, the, the meaning will take care of itself. No, no. So perhaps those are the five areas and the, the phonemic, uh, the phonics, the vocabulary and the comprehension should in fact, should in fact be taught every, every lesson, and regardless of the content area, even, even science and social studies. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And of course, that's the, the, the uh, the uh, English and the, the English literature, um, but um, the, the fluency is not something that's taught. I had a I had a teacher who was very pleased with uh, her youngster's progress at, at the reading center I owned, and called up and thanked me. We brought him up a couple of years, and I was so so thankful that she did this. That was lovely. But she said this one thing. I said yes. She said, Can you just tell his uh, tutor at your center? I know she has a master's in reading. But he just tell us she, he needs a little work when he reads out loud. His voice doesn't go up at the end of the sentence when it's a question. So there's a rather pregnant pause on my part, and I said, "Oh." But she was so nice in thanking us. I didn't want to say, "Does that really matter?" So I told this teacher at mm-hmm. my center, and, and she looked at me like I had two heads. I said, "Just, just, keep, just, just you know, do a tiny bit of work in that." And we both shook our heads like. So who cares? Right? But I actually went and watched, and I heard the little boy go, do you want to go to that store? And he couldn't get the concept of when she said, I want your voice to go up. Right? Uh, and the teacher's obviously talking about um, the youngster um, enunciate and uh, of a, a degree of importance on a scale of 1 through 10, that's a 1. So those are the five salutes, Rana. I hope I answered those your questions. Uh, in terms of the fluency, fluency can't be taught. Fluency develops by lots and lots of lots of exposure to print, and you know, start out with print that is easy, and you, little by little you, you can you can recognize more difficult uh, text uh, automatically. Um, and uh, uh, the other awareness, as I said, which shall be should be taught before kids come to school, but if it's not, teachers should be aware of it and can do some work at phonemic awareness. Now, that brings us to perhaps comprehension. If you want to talk a little bit about metacognition, this would be a perfect mm-hmm. time. I have that in front of me next, but I'll tell you something. I, I got a lot of feedback from a lot of people in the last couple of days. And okay. this, was, this was mind-boggling, to be very honest. Fluency uh-huh. is important. And a lot of times, because I had children in my classes that I, you know, slowed down, and I said, "You're reading the words, but you're not under- you're not hearing what you're saying. So read right. it to yourself, and tell right. me what you tell me what you heard when you heard it in your head." Now, there's right. a teacher of one of my two nieces, and they are natural readers; they read fluently. And the teacher called the parent to complain that they weren't sounding out the words in phonics, and I said. Okay. I said that is absolutely inappropriate and wrong because they're natural readers, they're comprehending, they're not word calling. I said, so don't worry about the phonics; they don't need it. So that's the definition. Gonna, that, that, 
That's going to take them three steps backwards also. Yeah. And and yeah. that's why one of them just ignored it, and the other one, I'm not, I said, if she needs me to listen to them read, I can tell you what the deal is. And you know what it is? They they don't realize how much I know. So what can I say? Yeah. So yeah. here we got metacomprehension. I have the definitions in front of me. I looked these up, people. I really did. <laughs> metacomprehension, also known as reading comprehension or reading metacognition, is a person's metacognitive ability to judge their own understanding and subsequent learning of text materials. And to be honest, I, when I do a book review, they they claim it's the fault is I understand what I'm reading because I look past what's on the page. And you know what? A lot of people can't do that. So the mm-hmm. simplest definitions are thinking about one's thinking or knowing about what's knowing. Metacognition refers to the process of considering and regulating one's own learning. In reading, this means that the reader can think critically about her own understanding as she goes. So how do you do work with, with children to help them to understand that what they're reading? I mean, because there are kids that are that hate reading. We're going to talk about right. the last part will be illiteracy and literacy. I think I've memorized. Um, there are kids that feel afraid. They're afraid to read out loud. Uh, I, I found when I was teaching sixth grade, and I don't know, they didn't have reading groups back then, uh, a lot of silent reading, a lot of discussion, and a lot of I dumped the reader, and I used literature. I literally dumped the uh-huh. reader in three for three years, I thought, and nobody knew. Nobody knew. What I, I just did the the friend method of teaching reading, and they read the, the classics. And these kids really scored high. They they loved reading because they said only you would be nuts enough to do uh, Huckleberry Finn and um, Tom Sawyer in the sixth grade and get in trouble. I got in trouble. I didn't care. It it was <laughs> worth it. It was it was yeah. worth well, yeah. it because you get yeah. kids that are these kids children had high IQs. They were brilliant. So they, you know, they they want, didn't want to sit and read some Mac and Muff and whatever. But there yeah. are difficulties with with reading. There's decoding difficulties. There's comprehension difficulties and retention difficulties. And I, I found that, well, the classes I had in sixth, the first grade, first sixth class I had, they had them all, and I fixed them somehow. Um, how do you get kids to remember if they read a book yesterday, how they forget tomorrow morning. Their retention skills are, are hard, and I've noticed yeah. that a lot of parents don't read with their children. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, well, you, they don't. Well, you, 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 your, your definitions, uh, as always. You, uh, uh, I, I've heard not only the uh, discussions that we've had, uh, the podcast, but but your your very very uh, in-depth uh, discussions with authors, uh, oftentimes uh, very very well-known authors, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm always impressed with the uh, the depth the depth of your your questions. Uh, I, I, I anyone listening would know you're prepared. Anyway, my my point being, friend, that uh, you, your your definitions were right on target. Metacognition is uh, metacognition. If we were doing a Venn diagram, a metacognition would be the big circle. Metacognition is thinking about thinking. Meta, mm-hmm. There are metacognition, metacognitive aspects to everything in life. Everything in life, we there are metacognitive aspects of it. Okay, if you're a if you're a baseball player, uh, in fact, my my uh, 
my grandson sometimes said to me, Daddy, I actually he, uh, likes to watch baseball. How can that guy who strains out his glove every, before he, if every pitch he strains out his glove and he, he like redoes it, the, the Velcro on the glove? Mm. Believe it or not, what, he, what he's doing, and I had to explain this to my grandson, and m- most people aren't aware of this, but uh, people like me who, who uh, just are, are intrigued by the, uh, mm. uh, the workings of the human mind. By doing that, that's a repetitive activity. By doing that, he doesn't need to, to fix the, the glove. But by doing that, that stops him from thinking about anything else. That stops him from thinking of, okay, i got to remember to do that. that. That keeps his focus. And there are some, mm-hmm. some baseball plays that they count 15 steps before they'll get to the plate. Okay? Uh, the, I'm taking baseball. But the metacognitive aspect to anything, by the way, if you're a really good tennis player and you're playing tennis and your forehand is great and your backhand is great, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, my God, I am really doing well. I'm remembering the bend my knees. All you have to do is think about what you're thinking. You have to do it mm-hmm. consciously. It's gone. You just missed the ball. They, they actually call that the skin effect. Okay, mm-hmm. think about him, say his name, and he goes away. Okay, so you do want to think about what you're thinking. That That is important. However, by thinking about what you're thinking, if it happens too much, you're taking away the automaticity, okay? Mm-hmm. A person is playing great tennis. He's playing great tennis because he's letting his uh, – Muscle memory takeover. Yeah, uh, the person that's adjusting his glove, he's not thinking about uh, I got to remember to bend my knees. I got to remember to stay th- uh, three feet away from the box. He, he's, <clears throat> pardon me, he's uh, he's letting his muscle memory take over. Now, metacomprehension, on the other hand, is a smaller circle. Metacomprehension is defined as thinking about what you're thinking as you're attempting to process either. Spoken or written language. Ah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Thinking about what you're thinking as you're attempting to process either the written or spoken language. Now, uh, if I may, I'll take you back a couple of years when I was still in the uh, the uh, master's degree classrooms, and I say, ladies and gentlemen, these are all teachers, friends, ladies or, or administrators. Ladies and gentlemen, how, how many of you have done this? You've picked up a book, either a nonfiction or a fiction book. You've read two, three, four, five, seven, eight pages, and then you close up the book. You, you know, you finish the assignment, and you get this funny feeling in your stomach, like you have absolutely no clue as to what mm-hmm. that which you've read. And friend, it has never happened in my 30 years of 32 years in teaching at the college level that almost all of the hands didn't go up. It's such a common occurrence, okay? So, so by the way, what is that? That's passive reading. That, that's word calling. As you said, they were just calling the words in their head. They, were, they might have solved three other problems in their mm-hmm. life, okay? Uh, but, so, all right, so if we know that, if we know that that's not, a, that's not an odd uh, happening when, when, when someone processes all the print, processes all the print automatically, but yet is left with nothing. Now, we're going to do a little quick segue with your indulgence to a fellow named uh, George A. Miller. George A. Miller at Harvard in the 50s and 60s did some fascinating research on the memory, the theoretical construct of memory. Mm -hmm. And I love these phrases, but a theoretical construct is nothing more than a theory that has been constructed to explain 
something that we really mm-hmm. aren't exactly sure how it works, but this is at least a, a starting point. So we call it the theoretical construct of memory because we're not absolutely certain that this construct is how it works, but it, it will stay around and it's still around until it's been disproven. George A. Miller asked all of these many graduate students, undergraduate uh, students at uh, uh, Harvard Yard to uh, come to his psych lab and he gave them activities to do where he would say numbers. They would listen to the numbers and say them back. He would say words, they would listen to the words. Uh, they would have to say them back. And uh, he then he expanded his research to uh, uh, parents of the community who would bring their the youngsters. And I think the, the youngest was uh, five, six, seven years, years old with the parent being obviously there, and he'd give them, uh, can you say these numbers for me, two, seven, nine, four, and the youngster would have to say it back. He would say mm-hmm. two or three words, and with all the youngsters, he would say a, a larger amount, okay? A, a turtle, friend, horse, barn, television, uh, uh, floor. And then the Australian have to repeat it. Uh, friend and, and George Millicent had, believe it or not, with his assistants, uh, several of them, for many years. And he came up with an article that he wrote in the Harvard Educational Review, uh, one of the most prestigious educational journals, uh, called The Magic Number 7 Plus or Minus 2. And, and, I, and I love that article. I, I think it should be a must for all teachers. And George Miller found that most people, most people, mm-hmm. But let's say third grade uh, to adults. Most people are able to hold on in their short-term memory between mm-hmm. five and nine bits of information. The magic number seven, plus or minus two. Five or nine bits of numbers in the short-term memory. Five is relatively easy. Six, a little bit harder. Seven, more difficult. And since you start approaching nine, the short, our short-term memories would be overloaded. And if I may, picture my hand going right over my head, meaning the information pops down. That's why if mm-hmm. I said to you, Fran, would you do me a favor? Would you call me after this interview today? Call, I'd like you to call me at my number, 631786974. That would be really tough for you to hold on to. Why? Because phone numbers are like seven, seven digits. However, if I said, Fran, more accounting than the, the, uh, uh, the uh, area code. But if I said, Fran, could you call me at 786-9741? Then it's a lot easier. How come? Because I did something called chunking. Chunking. Chunking mm-hmm. is a marvel- marvelous way of helping the brain overcome natural limitations on short-term memory. And when we, one of the things we have to do when we read, we have to try to chunk information. We're we're taking in these words, phrases, sentences, and if we just leave them words, phrases, sentences, we're going to find ourselves turning the page, feeling like we've done not so much other than process squiggles on the page. But if we chunk it, if we chunk the information, ah, that will stop our short-term memories from being overloaded. Here's a chunking strategy, a beautiful chunking strategy, friend. It's called uh, visualizing. Finish reading a sentence or two 
operate, and if it's if it lends itself to visualization, okay, such as social studies, um, literature, get a picture of it. Make a picture of it in your mind. Uh, by the way, mm-hmm. if you know, if you read the two, three, four sentences or the paragraph, and you and you you smile to yourself, you say, "Oh God, I know that." Don't bother. There's no need to. But if you have no clue to it, go back. That's why self-monitoring, self-monitoring is the reader's rudder. The self-monitoring tells the reader, are you getting it? Are you not? If you read a page and you turn the page and you have understood diddly squat, nothing, you have to go back. And just going back is a wonderful thing. That shows you you were self-monitoring yourself. Okay, Mm -hmm. great, I didn't get it. Let me let me see if I can read this first paragraph. Ah, I can see what's happening now. Yeah, okay. I can see they're in the woods, and I can see he's he's upset because he's just been told because his family lives forever. Uh, uh, talk everlasting, and 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 he's upset because he's wondering, does he really want to do this? He loves his family, but uh, I can see it happening, and 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 I'm uh, I, I can see the picture. Okay, now I can turn the page. Visualizing is a wonderful chunking strategy. Wonderful chunking. It helps overcome natural limitations on short-term memory. Another wonderful chunking strategy is self-questioning. Wait a minute. I have no clue what I just read. Let me go back. Who's doing this? Ah, okay. What's he doing? He's talking to this young lady. What are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that her family lives forever. Well, why is that odd? Well, because... Nobody lives forever, but our family apparently does, and they just never die. And I'm going to be given a choice if I want to be able to to do that. Ah, okay. Now, friend, who, what, where, when, why? But the youngster, the reader, has to ask those questions. And you say, now, not a problem for the teacher to model questioning. That's great. But the point is the reader has to develop those self-questioning strategies so he or she can chunk the information together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So we have... I wonder how many teachers actually do that. And by the way, you just gave away my secret for <laughs> being able to understand what the books I read. Do you realize that I read the book and I have it memorized from cover to cover? It's scary. Sure. And sure I, I do. And then I could... Different. And I could tell her. Then I get. Then the person I send the questions to to the to uh, the person running the tour. They give it to the author, and they go like, "How did you come up with that?" I go, "Can't tell you. It's a secret." And then they'll tell right. me, "You you know your questions. Uh, you actually read the book." I go, "Not only did I read it, I actually understood what you were trying to, to say." Right. Exactly. And then I tell them, exactly. well, I, t- "I took my reading messes, and there's a reason why." And I you know blame it on you, of course, that you know how smart I am. But um. Yeah, I've actually, last night, the other day I read a book. It's called, um, Frankly Feminist. It's about Jewish women, 44 uh-huh. Jewish stories about Jewish women. And it was really a tough read. It was excellent. They were all the same but yet different. And the stories about what they went through in life. And I had to actually close my eyes and say, let me see if I can picture what this person went through. Let me see if I can restate why she felt like that. And I, you know, 44 stories, I can't highlight all of them. I highlighted 25 of them in my review. My review was longer than I've ever done before. It was 1,600 words. And I sent it to the publicist, and they they thought it was the most wonderful review ever. I was like, oh, my, I was just worried because it was long. 
And yeah. I, it was, yeah, I said, gee, so I said, what did I read? Who, what, where, when, why? Okay. And I did that with the last, with the stories. And I said, you know what? Now I've got it. And that yep. and that's good because I don't know how many teachers are aware of self-questioning, you know, visualizing, short-term memory. Is you know, a lot of the kids read it and they go, "I forgot what I read." That's because you weren't exactly. focused on what you were reading to start with. And exactly. It's, it's scary. Your your example your example of that which you did and that which you you do probably most of the time when you, especially with tough reads when you're going to yeah. be interviewing an author. That those are perfect, and I'm not being patronizing. Those are perfect examples of metacognitive strategies. Yeah. And 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 I I don't want to sound like I'm throwing stones here, but most teachers don't know that. In fact, how many times do teachers, principals, parents, human beings say, "Oh, I forgot where I put my keys this morning. Oh, my short-term memory is shot." And it's like five o'clock in the air. That's mm-hmm. not short-term memory. When inform- the way the memory system works, if I may, is information first comes in to something called sensory store, and we get information through the senses, right? Hearing, seeing, listening, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. etc. Cetera. Again, and then if we continue to attend to it, it stays in sensory store and it goes through short-term memory. Short-term memory only holds between five and nine bits of information. So if we overload short-term memory with more than seven bits of information, it goes out. It's like we never thought. That's why you can read a page and not understand squat because you over, constantly overloaded your short-term memory. Now, what I find fascinating about that is that if you ask the reader, as you, you pointed out a few moments ago, well, you read the page. Can you tell me about it? No, not not really. Now, they they the first step in understanding why uh, the first step in, in fixing compre- in comprehension problems is being cognizant of why the process is breaking down for this youngster. Now, that mm-hmm. youngster, uh, by the way, does that youngster say, "Well, I read the page," or adult? Or it doesn't matter what age. But does that individual say, well, I read the page, I have no idea what I read, but hey, I guess it's because I was constantly overloading my short-term memory. I wasn't chunking, wasn't engaging Medicomp strategies. So, of course they don't say that. In fact, it's insidious, but what they say is, and this is really sad, uh, is oftentimes you have some very average, above-average IQ individual saying, well, I guess I'm stupid. Right? I guess I'm just stupid. Brand, I heard that I can tell you thousands of times from you. I know. Okay. And and and, and again, the the point is, I and sometimes I'm explaining these metacom strategies. It's called passive reading, as you know. When you when you 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 read the words fine, but you just have no clue what you've read. Right? Now again, it might not just be passive reading. If the youngster has poor vocabulary or poor yeah. background knowledge, those can be causal also. In fact, those could be big-time causal factors with uh, poor comprehension. That's why a reading specialist has to ascertain those as well. But if a youngster has good background knowledge, good vocabulary, or he's an automatic decoder, but yet he's left after processing a page of print silently, he's left with nothing, he or she read it passively and has to go back and kick in those what are called meta-comprehension strategies, and actually, actually, the first Metacom strategy is self-monitoring. 
you have to. By the way, if you're self-monitoring, you don't turn five pages. You don't turn five pages. I was reading a book the other night. I don't remember what book it was. It was a very light read. Mm-hmm. I think it was a book I, I have read a few times. A Gentleman in Moscow. It's called uh, by Immortals. And uh, I read the word. It was kind of late at night. I insomniac and read. Fran, I read this word once. Then I read it again and saying what? And that I'm saying what is a good thing. That means it's a self monitor, yes? I said, what mm-hmm. is that word? And I'm reading miniseries. Mini- and I thought, well, I, I thought it was on my Kindle, which sometimes I have a little, uh, uh, the, the print is a little bit off. Uh, but uh, especially if it's a, it's a newspaper. But anyway, uh, it, it, I finally went back and there word was a miniseries. There word was mini series. Now, now again, I guess I don't see that word in print that often, and I know what a mini-series is. Yeah. But again, because because that self-monitored, that forced me to go back, and after going back, I was able to kick in a fix-up strategy. Okay? Wait a minute. What word makes sense? Oh, yeah, he was talking about he was watching a mini-series, of course. So self-monitoring, number one. Number two, kick in one of those fix-up strategies. Who, what, where, when, why. Ask yourself those questions. Um. Uh, and if that doesn't do the trick for you, kick in the visualization, especially if it's a novel where you can see the characters and you can yeah. picture what's going on. Those, those stop your short-term memory from being overloaded. And those, and if you finish reading a novel, I had a student once said to me, Kabuto, I finished reading that novel, I felt like I wasn't reading. I felt like I was watching a mm-hmm. movie. Uh, I, that... that that tells you that, that 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 novel, the way it was written, the way that youngster interacted with it was such where there was just constant visualization and constant uh, metacomprehension. And as a result, he or she didn't have to work real hard at going back to fix up because there's no fixing up to be had. Here's a great quote uh, from Umberto Eco. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a great quote from someone who writes what I think are fairly difficult uh, novels. But uh, uh, Umberto Eco, quote, every book is a lazy machine waiting for the reader to do most of its work. Don't you love that? Every yeah, book that's, is that's, a lazy that's true. machine. You right? know what I loved about teaching the sixth grade kids? But I did it to the yeah. first. I was, I was in shell shock when they put me on first grade. It was uh-huh. the day before school started, and I go, like, what do you do with little people? You forget that they're little people, and you talk to them like they're sixth graders. Yeah. Seriously. I forgot that yeah. they were little, and I made them really yeah. smart. I think the most fun, because we have about five minutes, um, we had the, mo- the most fun was that um, self-monitoring and self-questioning. And then I used to say to them, well, let's read just one paragraph and ask, ask a question of somebody next to you. Ask out loud. Ask a question of the group. See what they Excellent. see. What they say. Great, great and great you'd be you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. They came up with great questions. I said, okay, yeah. where did you find that? What would you say? How do you find that in the story? And they asked each other questions, and then they decided to discuss the story in the book. Of course, right. it got really interesting with little women and stuff like that. But little uh-huh. first graders, and then I forgot that they were in first grade. And I said, well, we have yeah. to do vocabulary. And they learned how to use a regular dictionary because I decided right. they weren't little anymore. I could not yeah. believe if you, if you have 
faith in them. They they learned. I mean, they were little first graders that came in. By the end of the year, they were meeting third grade because I had yeah. no idea what yeah. I was. I just I, and it was a it was a site program. It was um lip, it was not Lippincott. It was Bank Street. But of course, I mm-hmm. created my own stories because the vocabulary was like nothing. It's like 20, yeah. 20, 12 words in the whole book, and I'm going, oh God, help me. But yeah, yeah. Um, but but, so, but yeah. I think we both could, I think we both could agree, friend, that that programs yeah. be it Lippincott or Scott Forsman yeah. or uh, whatever, Houghton Mifflin, that programs are always, always, always secondary to teachers. And, yeah. Right. In other words, the teacher is always the most important variable. If I may, I know we don't have much time left, so I'll try to talk fast. In 1967, they did the first grade studies across the United States. They 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 wanted to find out the best way to read because the, the Russians beat us. They got Sputnik up there, so we got really nervous. Poured a ton of money, mm-hmm. and they put they put um, uh, sight word basils in schools. They put linguistic basils in schools. They put phonic basils in schools, and they picked some schools that didn't have any reading programs, just books. And then they analyzed it. There was a five-year longitudinal study, and they wanted to see mm-hmm. which program works best. At the end of all of this research, Gene Shaw at Harvard collected all of it, analyzed, analyzed it, and the U.S. government wasn't happy. It seemed as though the results were almost the same for all the programs. So Gene Shaw did something with uh, good researchers always do. You bring a, a really good statistician. And the new statistics person looked at it and said, wait a minute, I found something that accounts for more variation than the program um, would uh, would be able to take credit for. It appears that certain teachers, regardless of programs, even if they move from one program to another program, they seem to have the best results. So that what it did was it reinforced the critical importance of the teacher variable. The teacher matters, and that's why that we only give people who are going to be elementary or secondary school teachers zero, three, six credits in the teaching of reading is an absolute travesty. It's an absolute travesty. And all friend, one, I, I wish a lot of things that people all come with are crazy so, that I take this stuff so seriously, but I do. Life yeah, me too. Sometimes. Right? I know you do. And lives are at stake. And, and for the youngster who looks at me and says, well, I'm, I, well my, my dad says it's because I'm lazy. And uh, uh, and when I when I get to, when I do my parent conferences after the I, I look at the dad, I say, yeah, Joey told me. He said, yeah, well, he is lazy, Doc. He said, I know, because he, he can read. He reads beautifully. He, he just, you know, he just he can't answer the questions. He, he, he's lazy. Mm-hmm. And when I go through the whole metacognitive thing, Sometimes you look at them like, oh, my God, forgive me for I don't know what I did, you know. Uh, you can convince the youngster. Uh, you basically, of course you feel like you're stupid because you've read everything. You know what all the words meant. How come you're not getting it? You think there's something wrong with you. But a teacher who knows about metacognition, metacomprehension, and is able to actually talk to the youngster about process. You can't talk to the youngster about reading process if you've had one course in the teacher of reading or two, and especially if they weren't all that great. I agree. I totally agree. Now, we didn't get to I'll come in some of the talking points, and I have them here because I haven't memorized people. I'm sure. We didn't talk I'm about sure. two, well, for next time, illiterate and uh, illiteracy. I, I, illiterate uh-huh. rate. And, um, you know, I, I yell at my nephew. My nephews are all brilliant. 
One is in um, college, and he's in football, but he's got an A average because he knows. Um, my other one is in financial, and it was really funny because Josh asked me the other day, what am I reading? And then he said to me, "Would you he say well, what is it about? <laughs> Can you give me some points? I go, you're right. really starting with me. I'm going to get you with this. No, he's really, he gets it. And then I'm writing my next book, and he said, okay, tell me, send me the chapter, and I'll tell you how to make it better. I said, right. that would help because I'm stuck on how to kill the character off. But tomorrow, <laughs> we have the author of 13-Hour Chaos. And on Thursday, we have New York Times author Brian Freeman. Jonathan Stride is back with Zero Night. Next Monday, uh, Deb Pines, Wicked Schemes. I have to remember all these. And on Wednesday, a different kind of take. Pastor Michael Jones will be here to talk about the seven habits of highly effective people. We're going to talk oh about his new on, yeah, his new online university. It gets interesting, and Amazon and all the others. And Michael is interesting. And of course, in December nineteenth, December twenty first, Minister Sam and I are going to talk about what goes on in you know um, hospice and winter blues and stuff. So. Um, it I can sounds tell like you, you have an exciting roundup, an exciting roundup of people, friends. Yeah, I try, and I and I've got the the guy that writes for um, Criminal Minds in December. DP loves Wonderful. me. Somebody's Wonderful. got to. <laughs> so I have, um, let's see, I have a show on the fifth. I have January third. Can we do another one that day? January third. Oh, I. Or I, I have. Oh, I could do with the 25th, whichever one. Oh, probably the 25th would be better. Okay, I'm going to put oh, that in my schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. January 25th, sure. Okay, I got it in my schedule. You decide. We didn't talk about literacy, literacy, and um, different intervention programs. So whatever you want to talk about, I'll figure it out. Very good, friend. Everyone, it's a beautiful day. Have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Cavuto. This is great. Have a great day, and bye. Thank you, friend. Goodbye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.